First, I'll tell you one story. Uh, this is 2009, and a senior of mine from uh, from IIT, he came to visit us with uh, his uh, global uh, stakeholders as well. And this is a global VC firm with an India presence, and he spent the entire day. He really liked Fractal's business, and at the end of the day, he gave me feedback. And he said, "Shrikant, we really like your business, but we don't like you. Um, we can't fund you because you're so important to the business. We have to f- have faith." in your ability to scale this business and we don't so that he told me that and it was such a hard hitting blow uh, i had already spent 9 years and you know this i told you about the 10 year kind of magic number only 2% companies make it to 10 years and we were at that 9 year mark and and hearing from this felt like okay i have spent so many years to get here and here's someone who's saying the reason for fractal's lack of success is me Hello and welcome back to episode 17 of First Principles, the leadership podcast from the Ken. I'm Rohan Dharma Kumar, your host. And as you can probably make out, I sound funny. That's because I'm currently recovering from a mild sinus infection following a cold, following a trip to Mumbai a week ago. I hope to be back to normal before the next episode. I promise. The reason I was in Mumbai. was to interview Srikant Velamakanni the co-founder and group CEO of Fractal an AI and analytics company with the rather ambitious goal of wanting to power every human decision in the enterprise that was Srikant's voice you heard at the beginning worth over 1.5 billion dollars today Fractal has raised close to 700 million dollars in venture capital over its lifetime but the path it took to get here is anything but boring growing up in a middle class indian family shrikant remembers his father telling him there was no such thing as an honest businessman the phrase was an oxymoron young shrikant decided he would never start a business of his own instead he'd work for respectable companies and yet in 2000 just 2 years after his mba shrikant and five of his friends quit their jobs scraped and pulled together 2 lakhs of their meager savings each and started fractal it would take fractal 13 years to raise any meaningful venture capital of its own though it takes a lot to build companies for the long term the school of hard knocks is unforgiving on young companies and first time founding teams the odds are measured in terms of survival first and not success Let's talk to Shrikant to understand how he and Fractal beat those odds and intend to continue doing so. Shrikant, on your website, very prominently, um, in the site navigation, there is something called AI for good. Later on in the site, I come across multiple instances where it talks about responsible AI. Why is this so? Why do you need 
a header level navigation which is the highest form of importance that a company gives on its home page for something that's called ai for good yeah ai is a general purpose technology it's a general purpose technology that's incredibly powerful and with all things that are very powerful you have to make sure that it's a force for good and it's not necessarily so it's such a big tool that it can be used for good or can be used for not so good things so our idea of ai for good was to see how ai can fundamentally alter human progress in a positive direction so whether it was covid-19 when we thought that the whole world was coming to an end we realized very quickly that working with the government of maharashtra and, and mumbai or telangana or or the karnataka state, state we realized that we could bring in data to drive decision making very very quickly we brought in all the data around arrivals of passengers to various zones uh, within the city and uh, the data on infections and quickly we could say here's where infection is spreading this is the kind of centers you may have to build for testing or for quarantining and so on these are the kinds of decisions you have to make in terms of hospital hospital admissions or discharge here's how we can use uh, algorithms to detect covid from a chest x-ray there are a whole host of decisions eventually we started looking at the uh, disease data and we could actually see that these are the kind of uh, factors that are comorbidity factors that are increasing rate of rate of deaths in uh, covid infected population so we saw how much how much ai can play a role in terms of improving outcomes that's just one example but there are countless other examples where we've seen that ai is a very important tool to drive productivity to drive global success and we want to make sure that that is front and center of how we think about the world how we think about ai may i ask you when you added approximately when did you add this to your website i would say maybe 4 or 5 years ago so you were actually ahead of your time the context to my question is we're in the midst of a raging controversy around is ai a destructive force or is it a force for good yeah. the fact that you added it to your website 4 5 years ago in some ways means that i think you were ahead of your time so i want to bring you to the present and ask and 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 please correct me if i'm wrong it appears that markets and investors are currently in a mood where we're rewarding companies that use ai you know economically what we seem to be lacking is who's taking responsibility or ownership for ai and by that what i mean is that the constant refrain that we hear from people proponents of ai is that we don't know how this will pan out but we can't let that uncertainty hold us back this is a force for good even though we don't know how it may turn out so do you believe that there should be from governments from regulators some kind of a counterbalancing force that tries to assign ownership and responsibility for where ai is headed as well and not just rewards which i think are already taken care of yeah ai is such a powerful technology that it is absolutely required that there are some checks and balances in place because for example deep fakes and deep fakes have become very popular these days and the quality of audio cloning or video cloning or uh, just understanding the style of somebody speaking etc all have become really really good so it's entirely possible that let's say come the next elections in which our country you would see a lot of deep fakes popping up which is 
either bringing a candidate down or trying to build up some candidate. It can happen. So given that situation, we know that we've got to have some controls in place. We have copyright issues. For example, with ChatGPT and GPT-4, we've seen that a lot of the work of other artists can be used to create new content, which is absolutely amazing. In, in one way, it's a technological feat that's worthy of uh, celebrating. You can write in someone else's style. You can create a painting in yes, someone else's yes, style. Yes, and that's someone yeah. else. Yeah. I just asked uh, GPT to to write a poem in the style of Ramdhari Singh Dinkar. I took an English poem and said, okay, write it in the style of Ramdhari Singh Dinkar. And yeah, it, it looks really good. So it not only understands English, it understands multiple languages. It can write poems. It can write lots of good stuff. So given that situation, it's incredibly powerful. So we have to make sure that there are safeguards. And for the first time, at least in my um, life or my career, I've seen AI reach a point where it feels like artificial general intelligence. The day when machines are smarter than human beings in every respect, that is around the corner. And that is a How very- How would you define around the corner? It could years. be as little as three, four years. Because GPT-4, which was released earlier in March uh, of this year, is looking to be so powerful that Microsoft researchers, a bunch of them studied it, wrote a paper called Sparks of AGI. It looks like it is round the corner. There are some amazing feats that it's performing, which in the just the next generation could be scary. So given that situation, it's also more immediate that we put in those safeguards in place that AI is used for good. AI, there is you know, privacy, there's compliance, there's AI safety in place. These are the kinds of mechanisms, fairness, transparency, lack of bias. These are things that have to be there in, in responsible AI. It's a hot topic. It's become very hot in the last two, three years, but Fractal has been working for longer than that. We published a AI responsible AI framework that we use it for the clients. We also advise our clients that they have an AI ethics committee in every decision that they make, especially their scaled businesses. And we also worked along with NASCOM to create a responsible AI framework for India. So these are things that we think are very powerful. They may have looked like, okay, why are we doing this in 2020? But in 2023, it's sort of kind of late if you didn't think of it so far. How would you devise a system to assign ownership and responsibility to the decisions made by AI. For instance, there was this news that came that a man in Europe recently died by suicide after having an extended conversation with an AI bot. Now, I mean, at this point, we only know some of the messages that that person exchanged with this. But my question is that, how do you even conceptually look at fixing ownership and responsibility? Because the way especially GPT uh, and LLM driven models seem to be is that there is this big black box into which an input is fed and then there are outputs that go out. So it's it seems to break the traceability model that all of us are used to while assigning ownership or responsibility. Yeah. How would you even look at it? It's a very tricky question. Uh, there is no traceability. And for times, for a long time, we've had uh, situations like, uh, you know, you use a bing build a tool. The tool can be used for good or for bad. It could even be a rope. You can use it to, to do things, you know, harm other people or harm yourself. That's possible. So can you build, build a rope maker? Can you, uh, can you blame a gun maker because the gun was used to make, do something bad? So it's a tool. That is the argument on one side. But on the other side, we know that these 
tools are very powerful and not everyone knows how to use it. So that it has to come with its own set of warnings, its own set of training in such a way that we don't have, we minimize the bad outcomes. Given that any, given that any general purpose technology can lead to harm in general, right? All good things can also be used for bad, bad purposes. Everything powerful can be used for bad purposes. Question is, can we stop? It seems impossible. The pace of scientific progress is unidirectional and it is unceasing. Given that, what we have to do is to make sure that our right kind of channelization of these energies and we have the right metrics, laws and policies in place so that we can minimize the bad outcomes and maximize the good outcomes. Is that even possible? Because we've seen that regulators usually operate at a lag of a couple of years, even when it came to technologies like social media yes. and regulating them, right? And here we're talking about AI, which very few companies in the world, I mean, I mean, when you call a company like Google a laggard at AI, you can imagine what we'll call our regulators. So is there a model where like people, regulators will even understand or comprehend what's going on to be able to actually like, you know, have any kind of regulations around these? If you think AI is progressing at 100 miles an hour and accelerating, typically laws are driving at five miles an hour and not progressing, right? They're not increasing their speed. So there is a problem. In this instance though, given the size and scope of what is ahead of us, I think regulators have taken note across the world. We have GDPR in the in the European region, which is a good step in, in the right direction with its own issues. But in general, I think across the world, there is an emerging consensus that responsible AI is something that we need to look at seriously. And we have to put some checks and balances in place to protect people. We can't protect jobs. You know, jobs are gonna go away and jobs will be, get redefined and it's been happening for the last 200 years. What we have to do is to protect it's people. cycle of creative destruction. Exactly. Sorry, destruction. Yes, indeed. I want to switch to fractal. And I'll ask you this question. How many lines do you need to describe what fractal is? We power every human decision in the enterprise. Just one line is enough. All right. How did you come up with this line? See, Throughout my career, I've been fascinated by mathematics and human behavior. Those are the two things that have shaped my thinking. And for the first time, when we worked with, back 23 years ago now, when we worked with ICICI, we were trying to enable them to do a lending decision within 30 seconds, and then overall disperse a loan within 30 minutes. We built that 30 minute loan product. And from then onwards, we were always been thinking that it is about powering decisions, enterprise decisions, human decisions through algorithms. We think that is a really the right place where AI plays the maximum, most impactful role. And that's how we've defined our business. If you think of a company, typically they make hundreds, millions of decisions every single day. Human beings, we make 250 to 300 high quality decisions every day. If algorithms could help us make better decisions, we'll have much better lives to live. The world will be a better place. That's why powering every human decisions. Are you a fan of analogies? Please, yeah, of course. If you were to use an analogy, how would you describe fractal? Fractal is what McKinsey is to consulting. Fractal is to analytics and AI. How old is Frankl? We are 23 years old. How many employees do you have? About 4,500. 
and what's your revenue? We are about 2,000 crores in revenue, Indian rupee terms, $250 million in dollar terms. We have had a 51% growth year on constant currency basis, 47% uh, in dollar terms in the last one year, and we're growing really well. You've raised a significant amount of venture capital over your lifetime. It's north of $600 million? Yes. Yes. And you were last valued at over a billion dollars? At $1.5 billion, yes. How old are you? I am 49. Are you married? Yes. I have uh, a wife, uh, Chetna, and my daughter is 10 years old. She's going to turn 11 later this month. Do you have co-founders? Yes. We started, six of us started Fractal together, and we were five of us from business school and one from IM Calcutta, your business school. <laughs> so six of us started. And in fact, we were happy to have a seventh one too, who almost joined and didn't join. So we were essentially, when we were starting out, we thought there was strength in numbers. We were all, you know, good people who thought that, okay, if more, more of us come together, we'll build a better business, bigger business. We looked at Infosys, which had six co-founders, and we said, oh, you know what, Infosys, we can also build a bigger company than Infosys, or better company than Infosys. That was our initial thinking. It soon turned out that some of those left, and we had some issues uh, while this happened, but after all the lessons that we learned, now we have two co-founders of Fractal, Pranay and I, who run this business 23 years after starting. Would you agree that something's changed over the last, I mean, you're a 23-year-old company and you talked about Infosys, which had multiple co-founders, and there was, you, you know, Fractal, which had multiple co-founders. To today, if you look at the last 5, 10, 15 years, the number of companies that have 5, 6, 7 founders is very rare. Now you see two co-founders, maximum three co-founders. What's changed? I, I'm sure there's an economic rationale for why we had more co-founders back then and why we don't have large number of co-founders today. I think one part of this is also what the venture capital firms look for and what they tend to fund. And I think there's an emerging consensus that two people founding teams are the most successful. If you look at Hewlett Packard to Apple to others, there are a lot of success stories of companies started with two, two people. One who's a CEO type or the people leader or the business leader and one who's a tech leader. Google, um, for instance. Yes. Google had two. Both of them were techies and therefore they got Eric Schmidt as, as, as a CEO. CEO. Um, so I think in case of Fractal, I think that works out quite well. Uh, Pranay is the guy who runs things, who gets things done. I'm the guy who imagines things and brings up with the new ideas. Uh, I'm the crazy one, and he is the one who gets things done. Could it also to do with the fact that, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, because you did not have the resources to start a company, so people had to essentially come together and pool in their own resources to start a company. Was Could that be one of the reasons why you had companies come together with five, six, seven people pooling in their resources? Was that how Fractal started? Yeah, we all got... We pulled little funds together. We were uh, fresh out of college and we didn't have that many savings, but we brought in a little bit of saving. I think it was two lakh rupees per person that we got together to start Fractal. And we did start with the idea that we'll do venture capital. In fact, one of the reasons I started Fractal was because we also thought that it was possible to raise capital. 
having grown up in families where there wasn't that much wealth to go around, it was inconceivable that you could start a business and build a business. I always thought you needed capital to create wealth. So I always grew up with this notion that I should not start a business. Only when I saw the venture capital industry starting to sort of arrive in India, it was very early days, but there were enough venture capital companies. They were, they were very much like banks. It was like harder to get, it was probably easier to get a loan than to get a VC funding back then. Uh, so in those scenarios, but it was the beginning of the venture capital industry. I saw friends of mine raising some capital. So we had confidence that we could raise capital. But you're right, it, in general, more people coming together was seen as a way to mitigate risk. If so many smart people think it's a good idea, it must be a good idea. So that's one of the validations that, hey, your friends are, are betting on you or betting to drive this thing with you. With the benefit of hindsight, how would you approach this problem today? And what advice would you give to people who are planning to start businesses of their own? How should they think about the co-founder problem? I when say, I say problem, I mean, yes. you know, I mean, how the should you look at co-founder? Absolutely. So the co-founder decision, I think is, you must not start with one person alone. I think it's hard to be a one person founding team. It's too lonely and um, it is also too risky unless you have a lot of wealth and a lot of uh, capital and you've already seen startup success in a previous avatar, I would say pick a co-founder. And the co-founder could be someone who compliments you. If you are the CEO type, find the CTO type. If you are the CTO type, find the CEO type. Find complementarity and high trust. So it has to be someone that you feel like you can live this life, you know, for the next 20 years, you can live a life with that person. I mean, it has to be that way. So Sorry to interrupt, but my question is what happens after the first two co-founders, as one increases the number of co-founders, and if you were to kind of plot on a graph, does the benefit go up? Do you reach a point of marginal return? What happens? Does it lead to more conflict, decision-making, um, uh, complexity, etc.? Three people co-founding team has the problem that two people can gang up and the third person feels isolated. So three people teams have that issue. Four people team can get into a deadlock. Two and two. In many ways, you're describing uh, market competition. Yes, yes. So there can be two people, four people, two people agree and two other people, two camps, and they're fighting with each other. So there are dynamics because of which all larger teams have their own dysfunctionalities. Sometimes the dysfunctionalities work because they bring in unique skills to the party. Sometimes it works very well because there's one clear leader. My one feedback or advice to every entrepreneur is do not bring in a large founding team where everybody's equal. It's a good philosophy that everybody's equal. You must have one person who is a clear leader, who is the CEO. And that decision you must make early on. Do not think that, look, CEO decision will emerge in six months or a year. Many uh, co-founders, they're friends. They feel like, you know what, I'm equal to him or her. And therefore, let me wait for six months to a year before deciding who should be the CEO. I would say, make the decision right now. Time is going to make this harder, not easier. Tell us about your family history. What did you start? Where did you grow up? And what was your pathway to entrepreneurship? Great question. I started off uh, in Assam. I was born in Andhra Pradesh. My parents are from Andhra Pradesh, but my father used to work for an oil company. My early years I spent in Assam during the Assam agitation that were happening back in the late 70s and early 80s. And we moved from Assam to Orissa. 
and then back to Assam, and then Jodhpur, and, and so on. So we traveled a lot. Every three years, we would move to a new location. I would have to start off with a new set of friends, make friends again. It was, it was painful in some ways, but it was also fun because I could make so many friends and I became you know, comfortable with whole, the whole of the country, right? I, every, any state in India, I could speak multiple languages, Assamese, Bengali, Odia, Telugu, so on. So I could learn a bunch, bunch of languages. So it was a great upbringing. I, I wouldn't uh, change it in any way. It was sort of a middle-class upbringing. My father used to tell me that uh, honest businessman is an oxymoron. That was one of the things he used to say. And I could not understand it. And he explained to me that businessmen are always corrupt. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he used, used to see that in his own line of work, people trying to bribe him and trying to threaten him and so on. I saw some of those instances. It shaped me quite a bit. So when I grew up, I told myself that, look, I have to go and take, you know, get world-class education, but I will always work for a high-quality company. I'll never start a business. It was very clear to me. I liked the IIT JE exam. I really loved the kind of questions. So I took that as a challenge. Uh, I don't think I should have been an engineer, very frankly, because I think I had more interest in math than in solving engineering problems back then. Uh, and then after, while at engineering, I also thought of doing an MBA. Again, um, it was more because of the test. It was test was very exciting. I took the test and I went to business school, I'm Ahmedabad. And after that, after doing all of that, I was thinking, okay, now what should I do with my life? During these years, the couple of things I figured out. One was that math continued to stay as a passion area. Secondly, during my engineering days, I found a lot of interest in the subject of psychology. We had a course called Psychological Basis for Human Behavior. And I read that book and I could read that whole book, hundreds of pages. I could read it because it interested me a lot. It, it was harder to read those engineering books by an applied mechanics and so on, but this was, this was fun. I really loved it. So I told myself that this seems to be the area I'm very interested in. I have continued reading books on psychology throughout. So psychology or just how does human behavior shape is, has always been an interest area for me. And math was the other interest area. So when uh, in 97, during my MBA days, I met Narayan Murthy of Infosys in a business ethics class. I started to feel like, look, I think there are, there are honest ways of building a business. I see some examples out of India. And then when I also saw people like me raising capital, I felt like this is a good time for me to quit and start a business. So I told my friend Nikhil in 1999 that, hey, you know what, I'm gonna quit and I'm gonna start a business before the turn of the millennium. And I didn't know where that came out. It was like a large language model was popping that text out automatically. I told him and then I said, okay, this, okay, did I just say that? Really, do I really mean it? And then it, then it, then it became something and then, by January of 2020, uh, sorry, January of 2000, I'd already quit and I started Fractal. You said, and 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 I kind of agree with that, like the thinking back then where uh, business, you did not have many examples of businesses to look up to, which is probably where um, your father's opinion, which was widely shared during that, like, you know, you're the 80s era, etc. And yet you decided... Uh, to kind of start a business. Other than Infosys, were there any other businesses that kind of changed your mind? Because growing up, the influence of your family as a child, you said you wanted to kind of like, you know, work for a company. So what made you change that and say that, look, I want to start a business? The other example that I saw and was very inspired by was HDFC Bank. They were also a fantastic bank that was, you know, really well run, very process-driven, 
and technology friendly. Some of those things have changed now. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking of the HDFC bank of the late 90s. I also, it was a very inspiring and ethical bank as well. So these are the two examples that come to mind. Even the Tata Group to some extent, but also an example of a very highly ethical, ethically run business. So there were a couple of examples, but Infosys was the closest because I could see someone who was who had no uh, entrepreneurial upbringing, a bunch of like-minded people coming together to starting a company and making it a great success. Mind you, Infosys wasn't a big success back then. In 1998, they were probably 50 million in revenue and they had just gone public and the public issue was a failure. So it was not as if it was such a great company or such a large company, but it was an example. It was an example that disproved what my father was telling me. And that sort of made the difference in, in making the decision for entrepreneurship. I'd like to go deeper. What is it that you believe really attracts people to entrepreneurship? Like when you watch the folks from Infosys or HDFC, what was the difference that you saw or what is it that young folks see in an entrepreneur versus a manager versus an employee? I think an entrepreneur is trying to make something out of nothing. Is creating something from thin air just by the sheer will of hard work, uh, imagination, uh, ability to lead, bring people together. It's like you are the one person who's saying, look, I can make something happen and I will convince the rest of the world that something like this is possible. That is really the entrepreneur's job, right? To imagine, to bring people together, uh, galvanize them into action, and then convince everybody else in the world that this is a good idea. You know, you must back it in some way or the other, even if it's a landlord or your spouse or your children or your uh, friends or, or, your, or your employees or future employees, you have to convince or your customers, clients, of course. So that is really the entrepreneur's job to have the confidence and the belief that, you know what, I have, I'll come up with something and I will convince everybody else to think like the way I'm thinking. You're 49 today. How has your definition of success changed from, say, 23 years ago when you started Fractal? I think even if, if I go back even further, to me, success was about winning something in the current. That is how I used to think of success back in the day. Have I scored 100 on the math test would be a, would be success. Have I scored, a, have I got a good rank in an IITJ exam or... When these are all objective yes. scores as well. Yes. that I would define success that way. Um, measurable, something that uh, is in the, in the, in the immediate uh, future and something that I could work towards. So there's not no long-term thinking in, involved in that. I think if I look back now, I would say that that was more of, a, of my um, puzzle-taking, puzzle test-taking, um, instant gratification side of me that was looking for some proof that look, you know what, I'm not, okay, I'm smart enough or look, I can create something or look, I can I can win a competition, a debate competition or I can uh, do something, right? That was, that was how I defined success as. I never thought of money during those days because somehow uh, growing up in a place where it, uh, it felt like, you know, I did not really have to, uh, magically my parents used to somehow manage to make the ends meet and even you know, lend to friends and family members and others. So we somehow were seemed to be well off. So I never thought money was a constraint or money was, uh, I had to make a lot of money or something like that. But it was about success. It was about winning in the immediate future. And that it was also like, when you win, somebody else is losing sometimes, right? I think now when I think of 
success, I think of progress in a direction. Am I better today than I was yesterday? Um, that is one way I look at, at success. Secondly, I think of, am I building for the long term? I always think of, okay, what can I do today that guarantees fractal success over the next 50 to 100 years? There's something I can do today that sets, up, sets us up in the right way. So much more longer term thinking and much more in terms of looking at this as, am I making progress? Am I better off today than yesterday? Am I making, uh, am I becoming a better human being? Those are the kinds of ways at which measure, measure success now. Also, all of them are much more subjective than objective. Yes, it's a good point. Can I ask you for something that made you really proud of during the last week, month or so at Fractal? Do you have, like most entrepreneurs I've asked, a very high internal bar for what you allow yourself to celebrate? In some ways, yes. I think uh, we have to celebrate the little things and I don't think this is necessarily my strength. Uh, I am learning how to celebrate more within uh, within Fractal. And I think we have created a culture where we pick something up. What is worth celebrating every week? Something we do every week is on a Wednesday, we have a town hall, which is for 75 minutes. Half the time we answer questions, but the remaining half, we actually look at things that are worth celebrating that week. Somebody turned 15 years at Fractal. Somebody just won something somewhere, or we won a new client somewhere. These are all small moments that are worth celebrating. So we've done a better job of celebrating now than ever before. But if you look at me as a person, I do have a high bar for what I would celebrate for more than, let's say, two seconds. Uh, for two seconds, I'll be happy. And after that, I'm, I'm moving on to things. I think the, the place where I find most happiness and uh, and also worth celebrating is the little things that my daughter does every day. For example, today she was telling me in the morning that uh, her music teacher is continuously tells her that she's doing a great job on, on her guitar, which I find to be fascinating because I know that is one of the things that I did not do. And she's somehow taken a liking to the guitar and she's playing it and she's making progress. She spends endless hours in, at home just practicing the guitar. And that fascinates me that, and that's worth celebrating. What was the path that took Fractal Analytics, the company, to Fractal? Today you're known as, are, are you known as Fractal Analytics or just Fractal? I think just Fractal. You've dropped the analytics like Apple computer dropped the computer from it. Uh, not because analytics is not what we do, because I think it is not required to be to in the description of Fractal. Hmm. That's why Fractal. Also, it's Fractal.ai. Yes. So in many ways, I see Fractal having evolved from starting out in the space of analytics to now, I think, dropping analytics in its name to having AI. What is this transformation from analytics to AI? That's and how did that happen? That's a great question. So if you think of the AI industry in general, it started in the 50s with Turing machine and so on. Um, and then it was about powering decisions only. When Fractal started, we were trying to help companies make better decisions with their data. And we called it analytics because if you said AI, nobody would understand it. And the techniques of machine learning, only the basic techniques were in, in vogue at that time. We had neural networks, even in my engineering days, 
I did projects around fingerprint verification, signature verification using neural networks, very basic neural networks. And uh, the computer science department, people used to think that this is some, they used to think of neural networks as like astrology. You know, it's some voodoo science, it really doesn't work. Why are these guys pretending? And the world of AI was about rules, was about expert systems that would, where you could make if then else rules. And that's how, in fact, uh, Deep Blue defeated Kasparov in the mid 90s. So AI was a different discipline. So we could not call ourselves AI because that was like a different, it was like a computer programming kind of thing back in the day. It was first based on first order logic. But analytics was about looking for patterns in data and helping make companies make decisions. Now this situation has flipped. All of AI has become what we used to call analytics back then because it is about looking for patterns in data. It's about building large, deep neural networks and and finding and you know predicting the next word, predicting the next next thing, and then using that to make better decisions. So things have changed dramatically. And how it changed was back when we started in 2000, it was all about powering decisions. I would call this the wild wild west of AI. Right? It was it was a lot of classical techniques, and if you brought in neural networks, nobody will use it. So up to 2009-10, that was the situation. First nine to 10 years of Fractal. Around 2009, you started seeing IBM, Microsoft, and others starting to publish results around speech processing using, using, using deep learning models. So deep learning started to get interesting. Where, and by 2012, with Image, ImageNet and AlexNet, we saw that in imaging as well as in speech, AI models were outperforming all the traditional models of computer vision or speech processing. That was a time we realized that this is something going to be, this is going to be very, very big. This is a big industry. And companies such as Google and Microsoft and others started investing significantly in AI technologies. So they understood that something big is happening. And the, all the results that you're seeing in 23 are because what they decided in 2010. They saw this coming. And for example, Google hired Jeff Hinton, which one of the you know, luminaries of AI into their lab. Uh, and he did some amazing things for them back in 2012 and so on. Uh, I think Microsoft had uh, Lee Deng and a bunch of other amazing scientists into their into their teams. So that happened in 2010. We saw it coming around 2011-12. We started seeing the similar things started to happen. By 2015, we had created a whole host of startups and companies and big AI teams, etc. within Fractal. And we saw in 2015, Fortune 100 companies starting to get engaged in the, on this topic. So they had board meetings where the CEO presented a strategy of data strategy, AI strategy to them, to, to the board around 2015, 2016. So many companies started to ask us lots of good questions. And there was the demand for AI started to go up quite significantly around that time. And we saw it and we started building towards that. By 2020, when COVID hit, that's when AI took off around the world. And by the way, the same time GPT-3 was launched by OpenAI, which obviously has become such a big thing. But from 2020 to 2023, that has changed to a whole other level now where the whole world can't get enough AI. And there's just, again, this hype and magic of, of AI is all over the place right now. One of the interesting things that you said is how this entire notion of what is AI has gotten inverted over the last couple of decades from AI being ways to mimic the way the human brain works through expert like systems, neural networks, etc. to essentially what is now, I mean, like, you know, uh, if you look at the LLM, GPT, etc., which is pattern recognition, prediction, etc., which is a very different kind of model. There are a lot of critics who even say that these are stochastic parrots and they're not really artificial intelligence. In fact, 
there was a fork we did not go down the path of true artificial intelligence inside instead we went towards the other fork so do you kind of like you know do you have a point of view on that that what we have today is it truly ai is it something else are we just calling it ai let me explain a uh, slight slight difference from what you said right the two forks were one fork and this was by the way a conference that was held in 2006 it is a 50 years since the dartmouth college summer project which where the word ai was defined formally etc so 50 years after that many of the people uh, met in in at dartmouth in 2006 and this debate was vigorously had at that time right people were still debating should we go down this path or that path what are the two paths one path to the left is rules based ai first order logic based ai where you say that if i have to win a game of chess i have to give this rules i have to say that you know this pawn has one point rook has uh, you know five points uh, and uh, bishop has three points queen has nine points and then you create various game situations give a way to calculate and and specify rules for how to behave in every situation now it turns out that that path was always going to be very difficult and almost impossible in fact human beings don't even behave that way human beings behave in a different way i'll come to that in a, in a bit but this kind of rule based systems went into lots of problems because what we think are rules there are always exception to the rules and then you can think of start thinking of exceptions and there are exceptions to the exceptions and there are exceptions to the exceptions to the exceptions and so on human beings are very complicated we make decisions in a much different way than this if then else way of thinking and therefore that whole branch has been abandoned more or less there are some people who still believe in it largely it's not really it's not really a place where progress is being made the other side was about pattern matching using neural networks and now which are called deep learning networks essentially what we are saying is there are lots of weights and flexibly i'll adapt the weights and it will throw up a result based on those weights right there are there's a deep network of mathematical computations which the layers of mathematical computation which eventually result in something is a dog or a cat or it is what is the next word in the sequence next token in the word etc that kind of a decision is being made by a math series of mathematical computations and once i see the results i'll tweak these weights in such a way that i'm more likely to get the results that i'm getting that's a mathematical optimization that's happening it turns out that human beings may be somewhat similar our brains because the way our neurons work right they fire up once you reach a certain threshold and then a whole host of billions of hundreds of billions of neurons collectively make the decision of what are the next word i'm speaking or whether uh, you know i like something whether i do something these decisions are being made i don't even know how i'm making those decisions but these decisions pop up in my head right so in a very similar way neural networks or deep learning networks work so there is no uh, let's say contradiction between neuroscience and the way deep learning is progressing in fact i would say that lots of advances in neuroscience are helping deep learning research because it is giving ideas as to how to build those networks so that they can mimic that human brain and similarly looking at what is succeeding in the deep learning world people are taking ideas for okay what could be the way in which human brain really works because we still don't know how our brain works right there's there's a lot of confusion or lots of research required to even figure out how our human brain makes decisions so both these areas are actually simultaneously benefiting from each other at this point of time and that's the world exciting world of deep learning i'm a believer in that i think this rule based world was the ai of the 90s i'm i'm so glad that it's it's dead from talking about how the brain works to how fractal works you are a single company for a long time and then suddenly at some point you started becoming other smaller companies 
There is Cuddle.ai, Eugenie.ai, Cure.ai, Senseforth.ai, Asper.ai, Theremin.ai, Samya.ai. Help us understand what is the strategy. Are you are you essentially trying to become a fractal? What is the like what changed that you actually started creating companies from within your company? What is the thinking that led up to that? It's a great question. So, like I was telling you, around 2010, 2012, that's the time when AI started to take off in a very significant way, and Fractal was serving and still serves many of the Fortune 100 companies, powering decisions in those in those companies. We realized that there are a lot of ideas we are coming up with, but the way we are currently serving our clients doesn't permit us to build on that research. So we wanted to build those products, and yet we wanted to make sure that. a services company doing products is a dangerous thing we want to make sure that somehow we handle that issue that we create these independent quasi independent startups and create those entrepreneurs from within feed those ideas incubate them fund them and help them drive success so that was the idea that germinated around 2014 2015 at fractal and around that time we also did a fundraise so we had uh, we were about to do a fundraise with from kazana which happened in 2016 So I did broach this topic with the new investors of Fractal. That look, we could make twenty five percent EBITDA margin in this company. It should be very easy, but I do not want to make that margin right now. I want to use the twenty five percent of money that we could make. I spent. I want to spend half of that money in growing our current business. It's we can accelerate the growth, and the remaining half, which is twelve and half percent of our revenue, I want to use that for building Fractal startups, which which are now called alpha companies in Fractal parlance. we create we started to we wanted to incubate them and we said we have some really good ideas and if we can find those entrepreneurs from within or from outside and give them the money we could create some magical startups in the world of ai using fractal's capital and fractal's ideas so are you becoming then more like a holding company sort of like what happens what is the yeah. what is the organizational thinking behind yeah. this the organizational thinking is stay consistent with power every human decision but do not get restricted to saying that we have to serve our clients only through the services route we have to build those ip we have to be we have to invent and invest on our clients behalf i really like jeff bezos is one of my role models and one of the things he says is to be truly client centric you just can't do what they're asking you to do you have to invent and invest on their behalf our goal was okay we have these clients we have to serve them but they are not asking us the questions that 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 they will ask next year or the year later when they ask those questions we need to have answers and for that i need to incubate businesses that are creating those ideas incubating those ideas and are ready for the clients so we created this pool of 12.5% of revenue which was a small pool to begin with and it's now grown to a pretty large pool and we use that money to fund our companies and we know that not every company will su- succeed so we are so first thing we did was cure.ai which is i went and met prashant a warrior prashant used to be at fractal um and then he quit fractal to start his own business in the image image space so i met fractal uh, i met prashant in 2015 and said hey you know what why don't you come back to fractal let's do something together um so we bought his startup and brought brought him into fractal he became the fractal fractal's chief data scientist and then along with him over a month long period i brainstormed and we created cure.ai which was about radiology ai and then we set up cure.ai and the next few years cure has become very successful including doing you know lung cancer detection tb detection it's got a bunch of fda approvals it's one of the most successful healthcare ai companies in india by by far would you call it a group company it's a group company 
now in 2020 it raised money from sequoia and mass mutual ventures in 2022 it raised money from health quad and novo nordisk it has now taken off in a very nice way and now it's it's one of our children so to speak right uh, i think of it as my i think of it as my child right because we've incubated it literally and now it's gone to college we are no longer a majority shareholder in cure we are only a 37% shareholder in cure but we've seen it grow from idea in a conference room to a business to a potential unicorn that's all happened in in the span of the last 6 years at at cure and we want to do the same thing with all the other companies that are there with fractal asper for example is also taking off nicely senseforth is taking off nicely so we've seen some good examples some that are struggling we know the creative destruction has to happen but in this process we want to create some amazing ideas that can change the shape of humanity so when you think of cure is doing some incredible work on tb on lung cancer it's actually saving lives the work that we do with in covid saved lives that's why ai for good also which we started our discussion with is about this is about using the power of ai in not just the ways in which we are currently our, our clients are asking us to do but think of it in broader number of ways and that's how we created alpha companies so if i were to look at fractal's revenue mix over time i'm assuming that for the first 10 15 years it was largely services revenue then when once you started spinning out companies of your own which were product companies you started getting product revenue as well and now since you're saying that you know some of those companies have become successful on their own and you reduced to minority shareholding i'm assuming there are venture returns from that would they would those be the three revenue mixes that you have so to speak services product and you know venture returns so to speak yeah that's absolutely right yes so fractal i'll take you back to you know the, one of the points that you keep making is that is fractal going to be around 50 years from now 100 years from now even when you are not around is this a way to make fractal to diversify fractal into as many spaces as as possible so as to ensure its longevity and like essentially to prepare it for anything and everything that lies ahead i would think of it as we we don't we want to stay focused on our mission which is power every human decision we certainly do not want to stray away from that it's a it's a big tent we can a lot of ideas can fit into the idea of powering human decisions within that i think we want to uh, build a business that serves clients end to end uh, and serves the big clients like fortune 100 clients end to end we we want to stay stay there the steps we are taking are because the space of ai is so exciting and so big we want to make sure that we have the bright ideas that come to us have a potential way of succeeding not just what clients are asking us immediately so if i see take a 100 year view of it we should be we should be a place that nurtures and grows exceptional people we want to create so many leaders that whether they are at fractal or somewhere else they're building big companies and are seen as okay fractal alumni are running some of the biggest companies in the It's world like a, the the idea of a keretsu yeah what the japanese idea of uh, you know interconnected yes. mesh network of companies that are like you know helping off each yes. other and growing off yes. each other yes yes serving clients growing people building ideas all in the in the quest of powering human decisions what do you think you add singularly the most value to fractal as its ceo 
I think I'm the culture leader of Fractal. So the most important value is to know that there is a soul of Fractal and I must represent the soul of Fractal and uh, that we will not do something stupid because if Shrikanth is in charge, nothing stupid will happen. I think that is the assurance that I want to provide Fractalites and that's the assurance I want to provide our clients and the world at large. That's one. Second is I'm also the one who brings a whole host of ideas. My mind is brimming with ideas, all the books I keep reading and all the ideas that I bring in, I tend to infuse the company with a ton of ideas. And thirdly, I would say that I'm still the biggest believer in Fractal, which is so important. The conviction, the faith, the confidence that look, it'll happen. We are going to a great future and you know what, this is where we are going and we will deliver it. That confidence, that conviction, I think is also important for Fractal success. What is your span of control at Fractal? How many people do you have who report directly to you? About 12 or so who directly report to me. Uh, and if you include some of my, uh, you know, what I call a CEO's office, it may be a little bit more than that. So my span of control is wide. Plus, below, because I have my co-founder Pranay, right, who also has a direct team, we have an executive team of 20 people. So we have a large span of control in general. But the kind of business we we are building, I do believe that it requires that way of thinking and that kind of a leadership team or executive team. How do you find exceptionally talented people out in the wild? You have to look for them. You have to actively source them. And you have to engage How? with them. So first of all, I look at blogs. I look at videos. Literally every day, I'm sending some screenshot of somebody's LinkedIn profile or a link to somebody's LinkedIn profile or somebody's um, blog post. And I would I would send it to Rohini, our chief people officer, and say, hey, we must hire him or her. Uh, and that's it. I'm, I'm sending those. I'm literally the so guy I who's CEO, sourcing. So one of the things that you're also responsible for is being chief scout. Yes, absolutely. Go and find these people. They're doing, you know, the system by itself doesn't find these people. You have to be on the lookout. If you are actively looking around the market, you see smart people. And when you see smart people, I don't think of them as, can I hire him or not today? I think of whether I can potentially hire them in the next any number of years. So I'll make connection with them. And I know that there is a time when I potentially could hire them. And I'll wait for that opportunity. Sometimes they're not ready. They're doing something far more important right now. Therefore, they're not ready. Or they don't think Fractal is big enough or good enough or something like that. I know that there could be various people like that. So I always look out, find them, and then wait for the opportunity when I potentially could hire them. How long did it take you as an entrepreneur to get over the hit to your ego when someone tells you, I don't think Fractal is interesting enough for me right now. At some point, mm -hmm. you must have taken it personally. At some point, you must have let it go and say, it's not a problem. We'll come back and talk some years down the line. I think I still haven't reached that point yet. <laughs> I think it's still personal because, you know, it is it is your baby. Entrepreneurship is your baby. And uh, everything good or bad, I take personally, absolutely personally. And that sensitivity could be a bug but I think of it as a feature. It is a feature because that helps me have have this drive to build a better fractal. When I look at people who are saying, hey, you're not good enough, I say, okay, I get you, I hear you. Okay, give us some more time and we'll be good enough for you. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying, uh, we are not arrogant about it, 
but we know that we're building a great company and one day or the other we will get there where you will feel that it's a good enough company for you as a potential client or as a potential fractalite in the same vein what keeps you paranoid is there a very recurring theme that comes to you in your dreams at night or when you're thinking which is related to entrepreneurial paranoia about disruption about the future i think the biggest reason for paranoia is irrelevance that is what keeps me awake at night which is are you still relevant are you still doing things that uh, are relevant to your clients and to your to, to fractalites and so on or complacency has kicked in where you feel like you know i'm good enough i'm doing well enough that is the day i think fraud starts to set in and i want to make sure that as a culturally we know that whatever we have done whatever laurels we have we don't rest on those laurels but we take every day at a time and start the day with a clean slate and say this is day zero mindset everything is to be one today because a client has like your work yesterday doesn't mean that they will like it today just because an idea has worked so far doesn't mean that it will work tomorrow we have to make sure that we earn the business we earn the trust of clients and employees and everyone every single day talking about talented people when you meet them when you're interviewing them do you have great open ended questions that you ask them what i'll try to do with uh, with the interviews or the discussions i have is to understand their life story that's what i would so which is the cliche tell me about yourself it's something like you know i want a chronological view of their life i like to make it you the know the story of their life the story of their lives and what I'm, are you looking for when you ask this question yeah exactly i'm i'm trying to get i get very curious about the details of their life the, the one is i can pick some incident which they are confidently talking of and go into and recreating that that story in in my mind in their mind to understand how they behaved in which situation and what drove them what are the motivations how did they respond how did they work with each other how did they deal with failure and then sometimes it also tells me whether somebody is a fake or a real as well i do use that uh, to find out fakes i'll give you an example i was uh, interviewing a guy who's based in chicago i was this is back a few 4 5 years ago i was doing this interview on phone and uh, i was looking for a senior tech person who could senior data scientist uh, very senior level data scientist and this guy was working for a you know a company that's known for its data science and he spent 55 minutes of the discussion going into you know into his life story and then digging deep into one big project that he had delivered and i kept asking him more and more detailed questions for, i went to technical levels and said how do you define you know, how do you do reject inference or something like that a question like that and then once it went there he basically f- he flipped out he said hey you know what i'm not a technical guy i was managing this project but somebody technical was un- was responsible for answering or doing that stuff which you are talking about and i said okay great thank you that was it i could figure out by till f- for the first 55 minutes i could not figure out that he is not technical because he was on the face of it he had a lot of technically you know s- technically sounding answers it's when we reached that point he he realized that okay this is not going to work i need to mention that i'm not a technical person and then rest of it was it's okay you know th- that he won't fit that role and that was okay but that is what i try to do in any in interviews can you take a break can i take yes take a 
one minute break. I will just pause it as well. Shrikant, you've fractal has raised over six hundred million dollars in venture capital. A lot of that has come in the last ten years or so. So I'm assuming that in the first ten, fifteen years or ten, thirteen years or so, it wasn't so easy to raise venture capital. So my question, therefore, is: What are your learnings from your unsuccessful attempts at fundraising? Considering that you got into entrepreneurship, thinking it would be easy to raise risk capital. It's a great question. Uh, we uh, all of the capital we've raised is in the last ten years. So first thirteen years we raised almost zero capital. So, so it was bootstrapped. Bootstrapped. We had a, a raised a small round from Gullu Mechandani. Was an angel investor, but apart from that, we raised no other capital. And I think I must have spoken to every venture capital company in the in the country during those days. It was very challenging uh, because we, we, there were various reasons to not fund us. Like we're you're a services business, analytics is too nascent. I don't even understand what analytics means. Uh, then we had founders who were leaving, etc. So we had some of those disputes because of which, even though we had some term sheets, we could not raise capital. I think what I learned. During this time, is that there is a power in building a profitable business grounds up. It is slower, but you learn the the fundamentals of the business much better when you know that okay, you have to make ends meet without raising money. When when money is there, you can. It's like it speeds up things, but the fundamentals can be lost. So there's a lot of good learning about how to build a business grounds up. So when even when we raised capital, six hundred and eighty-five million of capital, we have not wasted anything. We we still look at every dollar as if this dollar is a hard-earned dollar that we have produced, and therefore it has to have the same level of respect uh, and cannot be wasted. So that's how we do it. Some of it we could even do to a fault, but I think it's a it's good that we have built the business the hard way. And therefore, stay disciplined rather than, uh, you know, think of it some other's money. And I have a chance to play with it. If good things happen, great. Bad things happen, I can always start another business or start join a company. That's the current mindset. And I'm glad that we were not in that place. The first ten years, all the rejection attempts. Is there anything that you're taking away from them which you would kind of want to pass on to today's entrepreneurs as lessons? On what not to do or what to do. Couple of lessons. First, I'll tell you one story. Uh, this is 2009, and a senior of mine from uh, from IIT, he came to visit us with uh, his uh, global uh, stakeholders as well. And this is a global VC firm with an India presence. And he spent the entire day. He really liked Fractal's business. And at the end of the day, he gave me feedback. And he said, "Shrikant, we really like your business, but we don't like you." Um, we can't fund you because you're so important to the business we have to have faith in your ability to scale this business and we don't so that he told me that and it was such a hard hitting blow uh, i had already spent 9 years and you know this i told you about the 10 year kind of magic number i was struggling with this the survival number the survival magic, number 10 which years which you were saying 2% of companies make it beyond 10 yes, years yes only 2% companies make it to 10 years and we were at that 9 year mark and and hearing from this felt like okay i have spent so many years to get here and here's someone who's saying the reason for fractal's lack of success is me uh, or lack Sorry, of how did success. he justify it like was he saying that 
you cannot scale the business you cannot attract talent like you know could you go a little bit deeper yeah he basically he thought that i did not have what it takes to build this business uh to win fortune 100 clients attract the right talent build on those ideas uh, he didn't feel that i was equipped and i took it very personally like everything and i had to process it it's this is true with feedback every time you get feedback it's very hard hitting it's very unpleasant you want to resist it you want to deny it decline it uh, fight it uh, reject it in some way or the other so i did that too i always do that so i always have trouble in accepting feedback in the first pass but then i don't stop there i just go and you know sulk a little bit and you know couple of days or sometimes a couple of hours did you tell this to anyone yes i'm coming to that so i i process this feedback it took me a, around a day to process that feedback and next day in our executive team meeting i told the executive team that this is what this was a feedback so it was frankly i was trying to tell them that look the business is good you guys are good i am the problem and this is what he is saying and and i want to make sure that they feel that this rejection is not for them and it's for me so um so then i got better and frankly that once i internalized that feedback i think i got better so one reason why feedback is so important is because even though it is hard hitting it's difficult it once you accept it you already are better in some way or the other and or you are in that path to getting better so that is the first thing about rejection the second thing i tell entrepreneurs is you know i spent a lot of time trying to convince the whole world that ai is great ai businesses are worth funding this company will become bigger and so on and every rejection hurt me personally i felt that you know these guys just don't get it i need to convince everybody on the planet that this is a great idea i realized that that is not required what you need is one person to believe you it's entrepreneurship fundraising is not about convincing everybody it's about convincing one person that you get the money then you can build it right so you don't need every vc firm in the world to believe in you you need one vc firm to believe in you and back it and every round you have to do that one more vc firm to back you that's all you need so do not take the 99% of the companies that reject you as an indication of your failure or uh, or But your you still business. need to cast that net wide or are you talking about a different targeting approach itself yes i am suggesting that you walk into a meeting and say this is what i'm building do you believe in it nowadays i do that if somebody says look i don't believe in the ai business i want to be convinced that this is scalable blah 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 i say thank you great meet you great to meet you but i am not interested in convincing you i am not here to evangelize this if you already believe in this then if you want to spend the next next 30 minutes or 50 minutes in figuring out if fractal is the right company for you to invest in i'm happy to do that but i don't want to convince you about the space i don't want to convince you about a business model these are given if you already are convinced then let's have a chat because i need only one person to be convinced so i have stopped wasting my time on people who are just playing around trying to figure it out and who who don't have conviction and trying to get information to build their conviction i tell them you go and build your conviction at your own time and come back to me when you're ready until then there are others who have conviction let me just work with them so my suggestion to entrepreneurs is look for people who already believe in your idea rather than convincing you of anybody i have realized after 23 years that you can't convince anybody of anything anytime all you can do is to find people who already believe in it and work with them what are some of the first principles you turn to when you're making significant decisions around things that you haven't encountered before one of the things to think about is 
I like to avoid decisions that can potentially have catastrophic consequences. So if there's even a small chance that fractal could disappear because of that decision, I would not, I would say no to that decision. So that's one, one decision is take risks, but do not take existential risks. Sometimes what you don't understand may have existential risks baked into it. Let's say you invest in Bitcoins or something like that. You didn't know what was going on and suddenly one fine day you're out of liquidity and you're out of business. Why would you do something like that? So I'm just giving you a very extreme example, but that is an example of not taking existential risks. So many decisions in Fractal I have stopped because I felt that these are existential risks. Number two, look at regret minimization. Think of you know, a few years from now, will I regret having taken that risk or not having taken that risk? And sometimes it normally pushes you to take the risk because what you realize is that it's a risk, but it's not going to kill your business. But the upside is huge. The downside is can be managed. So it tends to help you take some decisions when you have the regret minimization framework. A famous example of that is Jeff Bezos. When he was quitting D. Shaw, a very successful hedge fund, to go to uh, Seattle and start Amazon, um, the, Mr. Shaw himself came and talked to him and he said, look, you have such a great career ahead of you, hedge funds, we are such a great hedge fund, you'll make tons of money. And if for a regular person, I would have said, still try, but for you, you're, you've got such a great career ahead of you, why would you quit this? So he told him that, look, when this inter I don't want to tell myself and my grandchildren 20, 30, 40 years from now that when this internet thing was taking off, I was just doing, stock market stuff. I was not really building a business. I, I don't want to waste my life and I want to give it a shot. Maybe I'll fail. In which case, you know what, I'm, come back, I'm going to come back to you. But I, don't want, I want to minimize the regret of not having taken that plunge. And that helped him make the decision. So the regret minimization is a second framework that I think is very helpful in making decisions. The third one I'll mention is about um, not measuring decisions by its consequences. Now, you will find it to be surprising or odd. Yeah, I was just going to say, what does that yes, mean? Yes, decisions have consequences and don't consequences reflect on the quality of the decision? Yes, but you make a decision and then this between decision that you make and the results that you get, there's something called luck in between. Sometimes your luck is on, on your side and therefore even a bad decision can result in good outcomes. Sometimes luck is not on your side, a good decision can result in bad outcomes. Somehow, Let's call it an X factor. Exactly. So somehow we associate... Good results with good decisions, though it's not always the case. I'll give you an example. In Arms and the Man, George Bernard Shaw's book, there is a, a very interesting scene very in, in the first act of the play where the um, protagonist, uh, the, 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 there's a lady called Raina. She's in, inside a bedroom. Her fiance is fighting a battle Ser on behalf of Serbia. And he's just news comes out that he's just won a great big battle. And everybody is praising uh, Sergius is the finest um, sort of general, etc. And uh, she is also very happy to know that her husband has just won a battle. And then she realizes that she's not alone in the room. There's someone who's sneaked into her room and who happens to be from the enemy side. And he somehow is escaping. And in the process, he hid inside her bedroom. And then he comes out and he's, he's a smart young man who is a Swiss mercenary fighting. He's not on the other side as much as he's a paid paid mercenary fighting this battle. And he tries to explain to her that your husband is a fool for because he won the battle. But what he did was he did a cavalry charge on the opposing side and the opposing side had tanks. 
they could have completely destroyed every single one in the army. It so turned out that tanks misfired, their ammunition was faulty. So none of the tanks could fire because of which they won the battle. So he says, your husband won or your fiance won this battle, but he was very foolish in doing so. So the, the lesson or the moral of the story is that decisions are a function of the quality of the decision and the luck involved in how the decision turns out. So do not always think that your good outcomes are a result of good decisions or bad outcomes are because of bad, bad decisions. Sometimes you have to separate the quality of the decision to the quality of the outcome. How do you assess the risks from not doing things? You, you kept talking about regret minimization, right? How do you kind of decide what's the risk of not doing something, especially in, when you operate in such a fluid and fast evolving space such as AI, where the surface area looks like every direction looks like potentially where there's innovation uh, taking place or disruption taking place? Yes. I think one of them is to look at your bandwidth, right? There are so many opportunities that you're always going to run into things that you could have done, but really don't have time to do. When a new idea comes in, sometimes you have to ask the question, can I drop an existing idea in order to support this idea? Right? And if you're not able to answer that and you do have limited bandwidth, you may still have to drop that idea because... So in a way, that's some kind of zero-sum thinking in terms of resources because yes. it forces you to prioritize and think in terms of there are real consequences. I have to give something up in order to get this. One of our executive team members always does that. Whenever somebody comes with a new idea, He's, he raises his hand and says, but what idea are we dropping in order to do this idea? Because the thinking that we have infinite resources and we can do anything is flawed. Because even if you have a lot of capital and a lot of private equity funded capital, you still have limited bandwidth as the top. So what can you manage? Can you provide that level of attention to that? If not, you may have to delay it. And then let's say you delayed and, and you did not work on an idea which in retrospect now looks foolish, right? What do you do then? You can crib or you can criticize that, look, I was right, look, I was prevented, or you can say, look, let me start now. The best idea, best time to start this was two years ago. The second best time to do is it now. So do not have ego issues along, around with it and recognize the fact that, you know what? I dropped it because of the other priorities at that point of time, but now, even though I'm a little late, I'm going to do it now. What metrics do you obsess over at Fractal? I call them the three moments of truth. One of the moments of truth is called the first moment of truth, which is when a client or a prospect first encounters you in a conversation and you present them with a solution, an idea, a vision, how do they, do they really get excited? Or do they feel like, oh, it's no different? How do you keep track of this considering that there must be dozens of this happening? Yes. So like we, in any given week we, or month. Yeah, we look at our first meetings to second meetings, our first meetings to proposals, our first the meetings conversion to conversions. Ratios. We look at those to understand whether we are winning the first moment of truth or not. And what kind of feedback are we getting? When companies come, somebody says, hey, you know, you don't look different. You don't look differentiated. Then I know that we are not winning the first moment of truth. The most important moment of truth to win is the second moment of truth. This is really where Fractal places the maximum amount of emphasis. The second moment of truth is a client or a customer, whatever, has decided to trust you and given you a business, bought your product, etc. Now they're using the product. Are they happy? Are they engaged? Are they advocating it to other people? Are they delighted or are they merely satisfied? 
So that I call as a second moment of truth. And here we measure net promoter score. And we send it to every single client, everybody who's potentially touching Fractal in some way or the other, we send to them every quarter. We get something like 400 to 500 pieces of feedback every quarter. So think of it as five to 10 every day. And these are circulated to everybody in Fractal to see and understand how Fractal is doing. Anybody who's involved in the team or the leadership and executive team will see every single feed, piece of feedback uh, and we sort of celebrate what we are winning, where we are winning and reflect on where we are losing. But the idea is that every client experience matters, every client moment to moment matters and their usage of our services and products should be delightful. So that's the second moment of truth. And the third one is called the zeroth moment of truth. Essentially in the marketplace, whether it's analysts, what kind of reputation do we have? Ex-employees, what do they think of Fractal? I'm really fascinated. How, how do you measure this? Yes. So, you know, we, one way to measure it is through the analyst ratings, whether we are Forrester, Gartner, some of the industry experts, where do they place you? Are you considered a leader? Are you considered as a challenger? Where are you in the scheme of things in the way they look at it? We do look at our analyst ratings. By the way, these are all I've told you in the client dimension. The same three moments of truth can be seen from an employee, employee dimension, dimension as well. But interestingly, you didn't talk about revenue, profitability, etc. Is it because, you know, that's a solved problem or that's an easier problem? I mean, wh wh why did you not mention those as your metrics? I think they are la lagging indicators of success. These are leading indicators of success. We do look at revenue growth. Very, very important to look at revenue growth because I think the way the world is moving, the way this market is evolving, growth is still a good surrogate for whether we are succeeding. We look at NRR, net revenue retention, which is the same clients that we served last year how much are we how much more are we doing this year so if i did 100 dollars of revenue with 10 clients that i signed up last year this year am i doing 120 130 or 140 with them so are that you is making NRR. more from the same clients yes it means that they like us so much that they're giving us more business every year so nps will lead to nrr because if you have a good net promoter score you get probably better better nrr so we look at that we also look at one more metric which is revenue growth percentage plus profitability percentage. We add the two numbers and we call it the efficiency score, which is there's a rule of 40 in the world, which is like if you have 20% revenue growth and 20% profitability, you're at 40, 20 plus 20. So we look at that number and we want to be at least a minimum of 50 uh, or 60 ideally. In some years we have done even better than that. But this year, for example, we will be at something like 50, 67 uh, on a constant currency basis. But even if you take that, it will be 63, 64. So our growth has been 47%. Our profitability is around 17, 18%. So if you add the two, we are in a really, really good spot in terms of our overall uh, efficiency score. What is the thing that you wish you didn't have to do as CEO? Uh, there's a lot of different things. Um, I am really good at ideation. I'm also good at um, developing those ideas or galvanizing the, the organization. The zero to one phase of yeah. things. Where I struggle a little bit is in implementation and follow through. So, you know, luckily for me, Pranay is really good at that. So we complement each other in, in that way. And there are several others in Fractal who are really good at the the final mile or the or the execution layer of it and, and driving to success. It's a very difficult skill because it requires program management, project management, follow throughs, and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. It is something that I find very difficult to do. It's not a skill that I have. Um, so that's 
there, I think I would struggle a lot. So you would see that, for example, uh, I've been wanting to write a book. Now, because it's a personal project, I have lots of ideas and I can even write a couple of pages at a time, but the book hasn't come out. It's been 13 years. So I do struggle with putting, uh, getting that done in that sense in, a, in, in my personal world. Are there pet phrases that you're known for within Fractal? Um, the most common one is feel free. So if you come to me with an idea or some some thought or something, you would I would usually respond by saying, feel free, go ahead and do it. So what does that imply? It means that I say that, look, you have come up with the idea and you should go and explore and make sure the idea works rather than add value to your idea right now. Sometimes I do that too, but many times I'm able to say that, look, it's a good idea. Let the market, let the customer, let the client, let someone validate that for you. Go ahead and give it a shot. This is my way of encouraging good ideas to flourish and market be the determinant rather than me, you know, throttling all good ideas. So that's the feel free. And it's true for with, with my exec team members. If they come up with an idea, they've thought, thought it through, I just feel free, just go ahead and try it. Give it a shot. And that's one of the most uh, common things that I would do at Fractal. You said that you're a fan of human behavior, consumer psychology, etc. How do you keep yourself abreast of not the literature which is in the books, but the changes which are happening in the real world? Do you have a system? Do you have a method of actually getting first-hand insights? About human behavior? About human behavior in the spaces that you operate. I observe a lot. And because my mind works in trying to understand how you, what is driving somebody. This is how my brain operates. What is driving this person to do it this way? So I'm always asking this question and answering it for myself. So I'm always processing in a meta meta processing, not just what is being said, but who's saying it, why is he saying it, why is she saying it, what must be driving him or her? So this is always going on in my head, always analyzing, observing, and seeing how the world works. Uh, I'm a student of politics. I actually study US politics a lot and I see how you know truth or how you know left and right get formed how one vilifies the other these sorts of things it, they fascinate me as a student and i'm because i'm not too close to it it's actually you can even objectively observe it so i do observe a lot and try to understand human behavior in terms of influence in terms of politics in terms of psychology uh, in terms of behavioral sciences i do try to do that secondly i read a ton of books a ton of books Every year, I think I would say, you know, easily in the 100 plus category of books every year. So I do get ideas. And whenever I get an idea, I try to see if I observe it, implement it. I would come up with, okay, let's, could we do this from a people standpoint? We have 4,500 people. So actually, we know uh, what kind of policies or what kind of behavior leads to what kind of consequence. And we can, it's a ready lab available to understand if we are doing well and what, are, what kind of uh, actions are good or not. Uh, so there's also a way to get some feedback on, on the ideas and seeing if if they work or not. Sorry, I must interrupt here. Uh, I got, you know, uh, one of my recent conversations with Kunal Shah of Cred. He said he does not read books because the problem that he faces is that once he reads books, he goes into implementation mode because there is stuff in the books which he wants, he's impatient to implement. And you just said the same, right? And you read like probably a hundred books. How do you avoid overwhelming your organization with all the ideas and feedback that you get from these books? 
and the good news is that the organization ignores most of your ideas <laughs> so that's uh, that that that's what happens and i think many people in an organizations are looking at you and saying okay he's come up with this good idea let's see if he remembers it 3 weeks later because if he has forgotten it then i don't need to implement any of that so that's a good test generally yes. that if something is important yes. a person will bring yes. it up again yes. yes i what i do in in fractal is to brainstorm with a number i have a lot of brainstorming partners this is my favorite activity when fractal is, is to bring someone have a whiteboard and think with them and typically what happens is that there are some very good brainstorming partners who encourage who who don't kill ideas but who are able to build ideas so after having built the idea together sorry take us through because this is one of the toughest things to do yeah, because yeah. free form brainstorming yes. is increasingly dying in the world especially yes. in the post pandemic era where meetings collaborations etc has become very yes. to the point and agenda driven take us through one of your free form brainstorming what happens you're walking you get an idea you read a book what do you do you call someone to your room do you fix up a calendar meeting what is the agenda i'll give you a idea full story of an idea okay this was 2009 and uh, i have you know read so many books on behavioral sciences by then on psychology etc by then and i'm realizing that okay this is human decision making we are bringing in data to drive decision making that's fractal is an ai company so we we analyze we do algorithms but yet there is a whole range of human decision making etc which is all about human brain how we function how we think how we act how we deal with other people what kind of uh, influences can change our decision making and uh, you know behavioral economics these are all coming in and i had no way to connect the two i'm talking 15 years back right this was not a thing back then so i i understood this and one fine day we were having this conversation in fractal and natwar who's now our cto he brought up this idea that here's an interesting company called final mile it is working with the mumbai uh, railway authorities in preventing uh, trespassing deaths and they built this fantastic solution which is involves these yellow lines on tracks where the gap between the yellow lines is constant and then there are a bunch of yellow lines there's free space and then the yellow lines again and by seeing how fast the train is crossing those yellow lines people get a better understanding of the speed i think they also had these speed breakers which yes, were yes. misaligned so yes. it forced jolts you into a stronger sense yeah exactly so they were doing such amazing work using understanding of the human brain and behavioral sciences and i told natwar hey we need to buy this company or we should invest in this company we should find a way to engage with this company natwar told me yeah you know, shrikant they are very different bunch of people we are a data company not going to happen just forget about it okay that done that is 2009 and 2015 we are having another conversation of a similar kind and then uh, i said hey natwar do you remember that day when we had this idea of uh, you know behavioral sciences company i said do you still remember those guys he said yeah yeah i know that their company their company is called final mile uh, i said hey can we introduce them let me give it a shot maybe they'll be interested and then he reintroduced me to final mile introduced me to final mile in 2015 and by 2016 we had a partnership because we wanted to bring in design and behavioral science into the way we do things and then 2018 we made the acquisition now the reason i'm giving the story is the brainstorming that we did after that was one fine day then again i went in, went to natwar and said you know what i think there's a way we need to bring in uh, this behavior human behavioral sciences and data sciences together and we have to figure out a process of doing this let's brainstorm so we we had a whiteboard uh, we had a whiteboard session in 2018 or something like that 
and we basically mapped out that you know to solve problems like the way fractal is solving intending to solve we actually need three things we need algorithms we need significant engineering which is about you know putting all the data pipelines automating decisions all the you know software engineering kind of thing right now data engineering called data engineering and we need design and design and behavioral sciences because we need to understand how human beings really think and so we brainstormed for 2 hours we built out a process map we said that all problems have to be solved with ai engineering and design we wrote out a, a two page document and literally 2 hours later we sent it to the exec team we said look we have come up with this plan with process we have been thinking loosely thinking about this for many years but here's a way to think about that we built and i socialized this with the exec team now exec team you know next executive call uh, meeting we have weekly meeting we we showed that idea to them and they you know some of them gave some ideas some criticize etc after socializing this and getting those ideas and incorporating that feedback we went to the larger team 100 people leadership team and we did the same and we kept evangelizing this idea till it became a part of fractal's way of working which is ai engineering and design so this is i see the power of brainstorming in the way take an idea develop it without killing it and once it reaches a certain certain stage in terms of its maturity then start to get validation and see if it can be killed and keep sort of working and refining the idea so that it won't be killed and then eventually launch the idea tell us about your daughter and her view of the world so my daughter is uh, shriana she is 10 years old and she is going to be 11 soon um she is in she loves learning she is a big math nerd already she and she wants to be she already wants to go to an iit and i keep telling her that you know you may have decided on iit but the iits haven't decided on you so just hold off but in grade 5 she is already thinking which iit she wants to go to what discipline she wants to do so she is she thinks a lot processes a lot and one of the things i have realized is that kids process a lot more than we usually give them credit for especially kids of this generation because yes. they have so much more stimulus data yes. information at their disposal exactly exactly what is parenting taught you about yourself Uh, I believe in uh, Marshall Goldsmith uh, and his style of coaching. Marshall Goldsmith is one of the greatest executive coaches in the world. He's written very popular books such as What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Recent book is called The Earned Life. And one of the things he says is feed forward. He says ask everyone, all your stakeholders for how can I get better? You know, give me some, you know, how can I get better at being a dad, for example? so he he did that with his own daughter when she was 10 his daughter is called kelly now she is i think uh, 30 something years old but he did that with her and i i read that and so i actually thought and i've had the good fortune of actually working with marshall so i went to my daughter and asked her this question a couple of years back uh, saying hey how can i be a better dad and she actually gave me some very good feedback i was surprised that at 8 years of age she had things that she wanted to me some things that she wanted me to get better at she said um when you're at home please do not use any phones i don't want you to use the phones when you're playing with me keep the phone away uh spend more time with me and um and so on i mean she gave me some very concrete feedback so but overall what i've realized about about parenting is that nobody's ready to be a parent the art of parenting is essentially 
learning about parenting you are learning more than your teaching and it is you are trying to be a good parent and by the by the time your kid is an adult hopefully you've learned how to be a parent it's not about training the kid as much as learning to be a parent how do you rate on a scale of 1 to 10 your performance as a ceo and as a parent i will say that maybe 7 on 10 as a ceo and maybe 8 on 10 as a parent do you find there's a leakage of insights between your role as a ceo and a parent i do use insights of human behavior uh and in fact discuss with my daughter for example we both read a book on emotional intelligence because i feel like that's one area that she needs to develop on uh so a very simple book called emotional intelligence 2.0 Uh, written by Travis Bradbury it's a very accessible uh, simple book uh, i read that book i thought it was ready she was ready for it so we both read that together and then um, i you know it basically says that there is self self awareness self management social awareness and relationship management so self and and others and awareness and management two dimensions you can do a 2 by 2 matrix of that yeah i was just going to say a 2 by 2 yeah, it's matrix. a 2 by 2 matrix it's very simple she understood it and uh, i think that is a framework that i've seen work with her i keep telling her look you're making progress on these dimensions and this is where you need to make progress and i think i use a similar framework in at work too so i've seen that these things do you know transcend work and home are there hobbies that you have or things that you do that others find quirky yes i think i have got more than my fair share of quirky things those? uh firstly i'm a, i'm vegan and i eat whole foods plant based diet so not just vegan i i try to avoid processed food as much as possible and i try to eat whole foods and i try only eat plant based foods so this is quirky because you know it creates some hassle wherever you going because then everybody has to take care of it and i'm actually happy to not eat if there's no vegan food or no whole food but uh, but it it does create some issues uh, of its kind secondly i walk a lot and i walk in meetings i'm always walking so it can be distracting for somebody and i, I do a lot of meeting if i'm on the phone doing a meeting then i'm certainly walking uh, I, there's no way i'll sit in one place and do the meeting but even in 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 person meetings in this longish conference rooms that we have I tend to walk a lot, and it can be a little distracting to people. Three, I measure everything, including my sleep, including everything. So very focused. I, I I might spend too much time talking about how much I slept last night and my sleep score, and you know my resting heart rate, and those sorts of things. It can drive a few people crazy. So I'm I'm in that quantified self category of people who tries to measure everything, and I do feel like some of those does help me in uh, in to the in, feedback in, loops. Yes, and last point I'll say is books. I talk so much about books that it can drive some people crazy because I'm literally for every conversation I'll throw up a book and sometimes three books in one conversation on one topic that this book says this that book says this so I try to bring too many books and that can also be a little quirky and yeah given that you read so many books and you're also the CEO of a very large company where do you find the where do books fit into your schedule which is everywhere essentially that's the idea if i'm commuting i'm i'm reading if i am in the car for 10 minutes i'm reading if i'm in the plane i'm reading physical books kindle 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 plus audio what i do is i have 
usually have the Kindle version and the audio version, or I use Kindle and use speech to text to, uh, sorry, uh, text to speech to also read as well as listen at the same time. I try to read and listen at the same time. Oh, that sorry, how, how does that happen? Like, oh, you, you, you were reading and you're listening to at it the at the same, same time. time. Yes. Why is that? Is that a hack? for yes, higher retention? It is a hack. Absolutely. It's a great hack for uh, retention because when you're only listening... To multi-sensorial experience. Yes. If you're only listening, you are not seeing the text and you get distracted. Um, and if you're only reading, then you read too slowly. So you can increase the speed and be multi-sensorial. And here's what I do, which, is, which probably drives people crazy. I'm doing that while I'm walking. So I'm actually looking at a screen and walking in a safe place, but I am doing that. Walking, reading and listening at the same time. And that is one of the things that I find uh, a lot of joy in because I, it increases my reading speed quite dramatically. Uh, I can read a lot of books in the, in this fashion. And I do it on the weekends and uh, mornings, even whenever I find time. Even if I have a 15 minute break between two meetings, you would see me reading a book in between. So what is personal time for you? Is it reading books? Is it something else? What does your personal time look like? So personal time is certainly reading books and playing with my daughter, uh, whatever is important to her. Sometimes doing yoga with her or uh, things like that. And and sometimes just traveling around the world together. We try to find new places every year and keep visiting them. And but yeah, so spring break, summer break, we tend to travel. But otherwise, if on a weekend, I think it's usually reading and playing with my daughter. And what does focus mode look like for you when you want to immerse yourself in a big problem, what does that look like? What does deep work look like for you? What does focus mode look like for you? So two things could be focus mode. One is brainstorming, which is, uh, I love brainstorming. And I think probably my sharpest uh, thinking or most focused, concentrated thinking happens when I'm in the middle of brainstorming with a whiteboard, with a couple of colleagues, not just alone. Sometimes I do it alone also, where I have a whiteboard and I'm, you know, you know, I would have, completely filled up the whiteboard in, in 15 minutes time and lots of good ideas can come in. Uh, and sometimes it's with other colleagues, but usually that is one focus mode. And secondly, when I have to write something, especially under a deadline, uh, I have to switch off everything. So if I'm on a computer, distraction is very easy. So if I have to get something done and I have to do it on the computer, then I have to switch off internet, I have to switch off my cell phone, literally close all tabs, that's the only way I can write and get things done. So that's the, those are two focus modes in which I work. On a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you with your life? Happiness is a very deep topic. Uh, and uh, I'm actually, I'm a student of happiness as well as much as um, somebody. You do reduce consumer. everything to a quantifiable, uh, measurable, feedback loop driven Yes. Metric. Yes. Happiness, essentially, you know, so you can take happiness in two ways. So one hap one is is life satisfaction, which is considering everything that's happened in your life, how satisfied are you with your life? That is one measure of happiness, which I think... What's that? Which I think I would say I would probably be um, 8 on 10. 8 on 10. Because I found over the years that you have to find happiness and you have to... You have to be happy to be happy, right? In some ways, you have to seek happiness rather than um, uh, rather than wait uh, for it to find you. Yeah, rather than say that, oh, hey, I will be happy if I will be happy when. No, I'm happy now. I'm happy because that's that's how you have to do it. So that's 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 the reason I think eight on ten. 
And the other kind of happiness is moment to moment happiness. Am I currently engaged? Am I currently uh, in my full flow? Uh, so that is something that I find it to be a combination of pleasure, meaning and strength. If you are having fun, meaning you're doing something that is doesn't feel too boring, it's meaningful in the sense that it's something for a larger purpose. It's doing for a good cause, something that's better, more than you, more important than you. And then it's an area of your strength where you can lose track of time. That combination of pleasure, meaning and strength creates the moment to moment happiness. I want to spend most of my day in that pleasure, meaning, strength combination. Of course, you can't because you have chores to do and other things to do. To the extent possible, even in the chores, let's say I have to wash clothes or I have to dry clothes or I have to cook or something like that, which I might find a chore, I stack. I try to stack something else with it to make it pleasurable and meaningful and so on. So either reading a book or listening to a book or watching a podcast or watching a YouTube channel or whatever, I combine something with it to make the whole experience this combination of pleasure, meaning and strength. Thank you so much, Srikant. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Rohan. Great to have you here.